Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on the podcast today is Susanna Camargo. Susanna is one of the world's leading experts on tropical cyclones, also known as hurricanes, and their relationship to the climate. Susanna has made important contributions to our understanding of how tropical cyclones are affected by natural climate variations, like El Nino, the influence of human-induced climate change on tropical cyclones, including the evaluation of how they're simulated in climate models, and the practice of seasonal climate forecasting of tropical cyclone activity. It's a little awkward for me to talk about how great these achievements of Susanna's are, because I've had the good fortune to be part of some of them since the time we both came here to Colombia over 20 years ago. In January of 2000, when I started as an assistant professor here, Susanna had just come to take a position as a staff associate in climate science at the International Research Institute for Climate and Society, a new institute that had just started here. She had left a tenured professorship in plasma physics in Brazil to take this new position, and she had never worked in climate science before. So that was a big step down in many ways for Susanna and a big professional risk, but it paid off. As time went on, Susanna has established herself very firmly as a leader in this field, and she's now the first holder of the Marie Tharp Lamont Research Professorship, a prestigious named chair. And I've been privileged all this time to be one of the many scientists around the world with whom Susanna collaborates and to be part of the story she tells in this conversation. So anyway, we talk about all this history, starting at the beginning with Susanna's childhood in Brazil and her education in physics, first there in Brazil, and then the factors that caused her to move to Germany, where she did her PhD and postdoc, and then back to Brazil, and then to the US in the career change I just described 20 years ago, and all the personal and professional challenges she's had to face in all that bouncing around geographically and scientifically. And at the end, we get into the role of gender in Susanna's career in particular, and in science in general. One side note about Susanna is that she has multiple connections to this podcast, because in addition to her long working relationship with me, she was also the co-advisor to our former PhD student, Melanie Bielli, who's also my co-creator and creative director in this effort. So it's always been obvious that we had to have Susanna on here, even if it took us till season two to do it. She's a great scientist and someone who's been important to my career, as well as to the field as a whole. So let's get to it. Here is my conversation with my distinguished colleague and friend, Susanna Camargo. Okay, Susanna, (laughs) thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Um, Welcome to our podcast, Deep Conviction. Of course, I know some of your biography, but I want you to tell it anyway. So let's start with where you're from. I'm from Sao Paulo, the city of Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo. For Brazilians, it makes a difference. It's like New York City, uh, in New York State. Not the suburbs or something? <laughs> like New York City, New York State, Sao Paulo City, you know, Sao Paulo State, yes. Yeah, so Do you look from... down on the people who are from outside the city? No, <laughs> it's just, you know, we even have a, you know, you say you're a Paulistano if you were born in Sao Paulo 
city and you're Paulista if you born in Sao Paulo state. <laughs> oh, okay. We should make up something like that here. But okay. <laughs> yeah. So I was born there and lived there until I was seven. And then when I was seven, I moved to a city about five hours from Sao Paulo. It's still in Sao Paulo state, northwest of Sao Paulo state. Why? Why did you guys move? Why? Um, my father, he trained as an engineer and my grandfather was an engineer as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, so his plan was to work with his father in this engineering firm when he graduated from, from college. But then when he's graduating, my grandfather died and my father was the only child. And so mm. my grandmother had inherited a farm from her family. Um, mm. So my father, as the only son, was trying to work and, you know, being an engineer, also take care of the family business, especially the farm. We, you know, he only used to go to this farm on vacation. It's not that he grew up there or anything like that, you know. Yeah. He was like born and raised in Sao Paulo with his whole life there. So that mean that meant that the he would travel a lot. Uh, so he would be a few weeks in Sao Paulo, then he would go to Franca and five hours away, and then he would go back. And then he, he liked the farm stuff a lot. So he started, then he bought another farm that was in further away. So my mom and us would almost never see him. So, uh, so the idea is that we would move to the city near the where the farm was, um, and then he would be home more, with the idea that we would just live there for a few years until I started middle school. That was the, the plan, uh, and then we would go back to São Paulo. Uh, my mom's still there; <laughs> they never moved back. Never happened. Yeah. So, but um. So you didn't move to the farm itself, just to the city? We lived in the farm the first six months or something like that until we bought a house in the city. But the farm is nowadays is basically in the city. Uh, that's a problem now, you know. What do you guys grow there? Uh, so or, or, traditionally, originally was a f coffee farm. So it's in the mm. coffee region on Brazil, where this is like one of the best coffee there. Um, so when my father was running it in the beginning, had had coffee, um, but also had um, cattle for yeah. milk and horses, and you know. But eventually, you know, he gave up the the coffee because it's a lot of work, and he had two frosts, and when you have frost, it kills the whole the whole thing is a plantation. So he had to start again and take years until the coffee started pro producing again. So after the second time, he, he was done. Um, I see. And what kind of engineering did he do? Uh, civil engineering, like oh. my grandfather too. Um, like bridges and roads and stuff? Or? Yeah. So my grandfather had an engineering firm and he actually built a few of the well-known landmarks in Sao Paulo. Um, so was this the start of your interest in science that you come from a line of 
uh, engineers or did it come from somewhere else? I, you know, actually I, I was not desperately interested in science per se. I was always interested in math. I always liked math. Mm -hmm. My mom's father, he is a doctor and his wife is a nurse. And so my mom was like, no, you have to be a doctor. We need another doctor in the family. I'm like, no, I don't like it. You know, I, I hate hospitals. <laughs> I hate anything to do with it. So I never thought myself like, you know, science, science. But I always liked math. Um, huh. It was always my favorite subject in school was math. Hmm. But I, you know, I was this kind of kid that I liked everything. So I liked school. You know, yeah. I liked history, I liked geography. I, I loved to read. I read all the time. Yeah, I, I like to write. So the only thing I didn't like was biology because you had to learn things by heart. And I'm always terrible at learning. Me too. <laughs> That's how I, I was the same. I didn't like biology either. I like genetics because you had to make calculations. <laughs> right. No, now they, right. When I learned biology, they didn't really teach us genetics. It wasn't such a big thing. And now, you know, my kids have had biology and they did all this genetics. And it seemed to me that, like, I wish it was like that back then because I would have. Yeah, I, I had a little. I would have got it more, you know? Yeah. yeah. But I did, I, I basically didn't know what I was going to do. And you have, a, I, I know you have at least one brother. Wait, you. Yeah, I have a brother, a younger brother. He. Yeah. Yeah, he studied veterinary. So. And all your people are still in Brazil, right? You're the only one who left. I have one cousin in California. Oh, okay. And, uh, okay, so seven years old, you moved to Franca, and uh, you're into math and school. And music. I always liked music. And music, yeah. Yeah. my my old, I have an older cousin who is a musician, and... She's four years older than me, so she was learning to play the guitar. And, I, you know, I was desperate that I had to learn to play the guitar, too. So I was quite young when I started. And what, and I'm trying to think of, I mean, what life was like in Brazil at that time. Was this still the military dictatorship yeah. time? Yeah. When did that end? I can't remember that. When I was starting college. Okay. So did that, I mean, did you have any perception of that as a kid? You know, we, we had all the stories. Like, for instance, when my parents got married, yeah. they went on their honeymoon. And when they came back to Sao Paulo from their honeymoon was when they, the day the coup was happening. Oh, wow. So they arrived in Sao Paulo and there was a coup going on. So it was kind of scary. But, you know, my, you know, my parents didn't talk much about what was going on and politics and all that they were they were not very but when you got to like high school you must have understood something yeah well, we understood what was going on but all this thing because you know was you know if you try to be very active you know you could be sent in away and there was torture there all the, you know it was very scary too so yeah and you knew that i mean yes we kind of all knew that but yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, no elections for president or anything when I was growing up. Yeah. Well, and um, you know, we should come back to this later when we talk about what's happening now. But, uh, but okay, so you go through high school. Yeah. Um, I was very involved into writing stuff. So there is um, this very known, well-known Brazilian writer called Euclides da Cunha, and he has read this very famous book. 
And my Portuguese teacher in high school, he was involved with, they had like a year that they send uh, students from all the high school in the state for like a learn about this this book. And it's like, a, there's a lot of history and a lot of uh, geography and actually involved a lot of drought stuff. You know, he's talked mm. about the effects of the drought in the Northeast in his book. Mm. So for instance, I was... I went there for all, all the years in high school. It's like a writing competition. Mm. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. So writing. You're a star, star student. Yeah. I was a top student in my, in my high school, but that doesn't mean a lot, you know? The top of the high school actually had rankings and you were literally number one? No, 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 we didn't have rankings, but you know. You just kind of knew that? Everybody was like, oh, whatever. <laughs> uh, and when I was in the last year in high school, you know, it's like this crazy way that works in Brazil that you're, you know, preparing for the SAT, preparing for the entrance exams. Mm -hmm. And so we did all these exams all the time and they're always putting the, the results and that would, you know, be public. And, you know, I was always doing very well. So these are the entrance exams for college. Yeah, so in Brazil, you have to pick a major before you go to college. So you apply yeah. to a major. So you have to basically decide which major you're going to do before mm -hmm. you go to college. And I was clueless. So my father, because, you know, he was an engineer, my grandfather, and basically all my male cousins were going through engineering school. He was like, oh, you like math. You want to do, I was talking about going study math. He was like, no, if you're, you should do engineering, not math. I'm like, no, I'm not a very practical person. <laughs> I'm not hands-on person. Oh, I'm not, I'm not a good person to be an engineer. And uh, so he decided to take me to talk with some professors from, you know, he went to University of Sao Paulo Engineering School, which is one of the top in the country. So he got some people he knew from there and took me to talk with two of them. Basically, to try to convince me to study engineering. <laughs> and, and it was very funny because one of them, when we were chatting, he turned to me and said, well, if I were you, I wouldn't do either math or engineering. He said, I would do physics. And I'm like, why? He said, well, because it's such a basic science, you can do anything afterwards. And you, then yeah. you can, if you really want, you can go to engineering. But I, I had a terrible physics teacher at high school, so I actually didn't like physics that much until that point. Mm. So he gave me some books to, to read. Uh, mm -hmm. So then I was like, wow, this seems really interesting. So I ended up in then applying for physics. Do you remember what the books were? No, not really. <laughs> I wish and I did. And uh, one other question before you go on. I mean, you said that your father and your grandfather and all the male cousins were engineers. So what did all the women do? Um, my mom didn't go to college. My grandfather was very traditionalist. And he said only the male sons would go to college. The, my mom and my aunt, they were not allowed to go to college. Basically, mm. he thought that women could only be a teacher's nurses or what's the other thing secretaries basically right um so my mom so in that being like the four-year program that you end up being a teacher so that's what but she what about your generation i mean my generation so i am the third uh so my 
oldest uh, cousin, she is a musician, so she was interested in music. Mm-hmm. And then there was a cousin, he went to agriculture or engineering kind of thing. And, um, and then me, I was the third one. So, yeah. And okay. my father was his only child, so I didn't have cousins from his side. Okay. Um, so you applied yeah. for physics? I applied for physics. Uh, that actually is a very interesting story, how much my father was like, you know, believed in me. Because the entrance exams are such, you know, you 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 apply and then there are two phases. The first phase is all multiple choice and like one day and then you have four days of exams and you, you're tested in everything, mm-hmm. you know, math, geography, history, four days of everything. Portuguese, English. Um, so then there is a day that at that point, not that's not like that anymore, that they, they, they would release the results. So the way they would put it, there were some places that they would have names, all the names of everybody that was approved, printed in papers on a wall. But not everywhere. You have, and the next day would appear in the newspaper. So if you don't, you didn't live in a place that had those names, you know, easily reachable, you have to wait for the next day for the newspaper. But um, but everybody wanted to know, of course, when they released. So you always ask someone to go and look, you know, your name and everything. So I don't remember who the person was because the city I lived in didn't have the names, but, you know, the mm. So we asked someone to go and look if my name was there and came back, said, no, your name was not there. And I'm like, okay, then I didn't pass. That's, you know, I, 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 you know, I did one exam for only for Sao Paulo University, which is you know, the best university in the country. And I, the idea is that I didn't get in. I would try again the following year. That's what people do. Um, it's so much better that you don't want to go somewhere else. I mean. Well, my, basically, my parents, is like usually people do a one year just preparing for the exams. They finish high school, oh, really? try the exams, and if they don't pass, especially if you go medical school or, you know, or computer science, the most competitive ones, you, it's typical people. Some people do two or three years just preparing for the exams. Because it, but I mean, is that because so that they'll get in at all or so that they'll get into the best place? I mean, the best places. So it's very, very hierarchical, like yeah. this university is way better than all the others and it's yeah. worth another year just to get in there as opposed to the next one. Yeah, and also they're public, you know, some of the best universities in Brazil typically are public universities you go for free. Right. Yeah. So uh, so I came and I was like, just, you know, I told everybody I, I didn't pass. I went to my room and started crying and my, my father opened the door and said, I know you were approved. And I know you passed. I'm like, start yelling at him, of course. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? So he, so I was there all upset. And he uh, asked someone that, you know, he knew well to go and uh, look at my name in another place. And then like an hour later, he came back and said, I told you, <laughs> you passed, you approved. Uh, and I was like, wow. And now I say, what guts he had to do that, <laughs> to go to tell me before he knew for sure that I was approved, that, you know, he knew it was approved anyway. <laughs> what, how did the first person mess it up? I don't know. It's like <laughs> thousands and thousands and thousands of names. All right. You know. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So then that was in Sao Paulo City back there. So I went back to live there. 
Mm -hmm. And so was it like to study physics at Sao Paulo University? And whenever that was, 80s, I guess? You're like my age, so. Yes, yeah. So I started in 82. Um, I didn't know what to expect, really. I went there like a little clueless, you know, uh, what yeah. what was going to be. And first of all, it was like, I think, a shock, you know, because you go from being like, you know, the best student, and then suddenly everybody there is was the best student in their class. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, well, this is a little different. Um, and I knew that my school was not as good as a lot of the people that, you know, went to school in Sao Paulo or, mm -hmm. you know, that had be better formation than I did. So, uh, yeah, and I had my first and only time that I was really freaking out that, you know, I was, uh, now I know that, but I didn't know at the time. I'm, I'm absolutely terrible in three-dimensional vision. Mm. And I have very hard time seeing perspective. Mm. Um, so I, I had a class, I think it was my first semester, that was uh, three-dimensional geometry and vectors. And, uh, and I was just, I couldn't figure it out. It was really hard for me. And it was just like, wow. How can it be and uh, so hard? So it was a shock that first time I really had to work really hard to do well in the class. I started doing some undergrad research um, yeah. in physics, um, all very, you know, random how I ended up doing what I was doing. Which was what? It was I, me and my best friend. We decided, well, we, we should start figuring out to find an advisor, a mentor to do some undergrad research. And then we thought about it. We knew we didn't want to do anything with labs or hands-on. We do something theoretical. Mm -hmm. um, so we went together and started knocking on the doors of professors. And, you know, one of them, like, yeah, I have too many students already working with me. The other one, like, was very nasty. <laughs> and then one of them was super nice and like, sure, you both can start working with me. And and that was it. So, and that was actually end up me, my, I worked with him for my, the rest of my undergrad as doing undergrad research with him. And then I, he was my master of science advisor. On what topic? Uh, so theoretical plasma physics. Okay, so that started already then. Yeah, and, and as I said, it was completely random that end. But then I started taking all the classes like fluid mechanics and, you know, plasmas because, you know, I was I was doing that. And what what was the, I mean, what was the representation of women in all these disciplines? Was it many or not? Uh, math and computer science were very few. Physics in my year, we were about 30%. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah, so, you know, my advisor, he he's, you know, he was very young, he was very nice, and, you know, I liked working with him, and it was basically me and my best friend, we were share. we even have an office as an undergrad, we shared the office, worked with him, and then we, we studied together to our exams, and, you know, I would go to her house on Sundays, she would come to my apartment on <laughs> Saturdays, and we, so it was just like I had a, a good what good going uh so and then uh as an undergrad you you can get also scholarships to to do your research 
So we apply, he applied for one for me to get it. So because I was doing T, some TA in computer science to get some extra money. Right. Um, but then I then he got me some money to do research with him so that I would do you know my free time <laughs> you know the breaks so that's so I got that and then he said why then why don't you just stay and do a master's with me so that's um I just decided to do that um and then I started to think what I that I wanted to go out of the out of Brazil for a PhD why uh well i i thought it was a good idea i like to travel and um when i was 15 i went to england for a whole mm -hmm. month by myself to study english and then i we traveled mm -hmm. around england went to scotland london mm -hmm. and i i have this completely memory like oh my gosh i want to come and live in europe i that's what i want to do oh, okay uh so i really was uh, and, no, you know. no conflict about that. No, no fear of leaving home or anything like that. Oh no, absolutely not. Uh, so I and I wanted Europe, not U.S. Right. Because I was totally your anti-American. Uh, when I was in college, Che Guevara shirt, anti-American imperialism, everything. Right. So it's a little funny that here I am, here now, uh, American citizen. <laughs> was that a, I mean, was that a common, I mean, was that just you or was that a common uh, Oh, yeah. Everybody, yeah. you know, all the college students were, you know, on the left and, uh, right. you know, again, you know, blaming U.S. for helping the coup in Brazil and the CIA was responsible for the coup and, yeah. you know, all the typical Latin American yeah. sentiments against U.S. Right. And I don't know the history of it. It's probably true. I don't know. what. It... Yeah, there is some. <laughs> <laughs> they helped. They didn't, they didn't do it. It was not so bad as Chile, but, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. So that's why I really wanted uh, to go to Europe. And my advisor, he did his PhD in Germany. And the way he did it, he started his PhD in, in Brazil, went there, spent a couple of years, did his research in Germany and came back and defend his thesis in Brazil. Mm -hmm. This is a common thing that, you know, that they offer in Brazil. So his ways is like you, you get experience of research out of the country, but you, it's not, you don't stay as long as doing the whole thing uh, out of the country with your scholarship. So I started thinking about that. So I started studying German. Um, I was still an undergrad. I started studying German. And, and you had English in, in high school and stuff? You had English already? I, my mom actually put me to study English when I was four years old. I started, started studying oh, okay. English when I was four years old. Why? Just for... Um, yeah, I thought English and studying a second language was important. English was the good one. So... Okay. Yeah, and so that's why I was like, I was taking all these, like, you know, all the Cambridge and Oxford University exams, TOEFL, so all, all that I was taking when I was in high school. And that's why I went, mm. I went to England for yeah. a month. Yeah. Um, so okay, I started. So now you're taking German. Yeah. I'm taking German, and I'm like, yeah, that sounds a good idea. He said, you can. So the, the idea was that I was try to get a, a scholarship to go to Germany for two years, but he would stay as my advisor 
in Brazil, and I was going to work with his advisor in Munich um, as um, when I was in Germany, and you know the topic would be between the two of them. And for me, that sounds a good plan. So I decided to try to do that. So before applying to the Brazilian one, I applied to this German scholarship, which is for Germans to go outside of Germany and study, and also for um, foreigners to go study in Germany. Mm -hmm. So it's a super long process, like very many, many phases and the competition goes on and on. I interview it 20 times. <laughs> but then, and, and then I got the scholarship to go mm -hmm. to Germany. That, that scholarship was like for go staying two years in Germany doing my uh, research part of my PhD. So, but at that point I had a serious boyfriend and I just told him, I'm going to Germany. <laughs> If you want to be with me, you get a scholarship to go to Germany too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you he did. More, so you were more serious about Germany than the boyfriend, I guess. Oh yeah, I kind of think maybe <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, we you know we but were. But it worked. <laughs> yeah, so so he, he got the Brazilian version of the this a Brazilian scholarship to go uh -huh. to Germany, but the they were like they had some relations, so like you know the German courses were you know, this, the same that are offered, but we were sent to different cities and also he got six months of German. I just got two months. So I went later. He went actually before me. Mm -hmm. So I went to, I was in Mannheim for two months when mm -hmm. I arrived in Germany. Yeah. And that was good. I met a lot of like of my good friends from Germany when I was there. You know, so there were people from everywhere, all countries, all studying German. Yeah. Um, so, well, of course, I end up, you know, close to some of the Brazilians that were taking the course, of course. And then I moved to Munich. Because um, mm -hmm. that's where the big plasma place is. Yeah, it's in, it's in a suburb of Munich, it's in Garching. Yeah, I was there one time. Not to the plasma place, but to that town. Yeah, Yeah. so it's a big campus of has everything there, including this. So... My, my advisor was in the Max Planck Institute for Plasma Physics. So yeah. that's where I was all the time. When I was initially, I was a student of the Ludwig Maximilian University. So then, uh, you know, it was interesting. So I arrived there. First of all, you know, as you know, in Munich, they speak uh, Bavarian. <laughs> so, yeah. so I studied so many years of Hordeutsch, and then I get to Bavaria, and the first word my landlady talks to me, I'm like, what the hell is that? <laughs> I don't understand a word. Why did I spend all this time studying German? We're not even speaking German. What, like, a little... <laughs> uh, um, so, and then I, I arrived to talk with my advisor. So uh, he's a very, uh, you know, interesting guy. Um, so I, I was just like, okay, I have to find the place, I'm, you know, the institute. I have to find him. And, you know, I was just like proud just to find his office for me. It was just like the big achievement. So I get in his office and then we start talking. And then he turned to me and said, well, 
you know, I have to be honest with you about your project. I'm like, <laughs> and he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to tell you, but I don't think you're going to win the Nobel Prize <laughs> with this project. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Nobel Prize? I'm happy if I get a PhD out of this. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So he was really, you know, obsessed with the idea of that he should have gotten Nobel Prize. But of course, he didn't. <laughs> you know, he, it was a tough one, you know. When I did something really good, the best, you know, compliment he would give is like, not bad. Right. <laughs> um, so, what's stuff? And what if it wasn't really good? <laughs> no words. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So narrow dynamic range. Yeah. 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 So you know, I, I was lucky. I arrived there, and he ca- he gave me a project, and very fast we had something, and we had a paper, like you know, really fast. Oh. And I was like, okay, I can't do this. Then he turned to me and said, well, now go and find a project and figure out what you want to do. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Uh, he ended up, you know, I was, I was lost for a while. I was really lost. So he ended up, you know, give me another project he was already working on that, you know, I ended up being second author in that paper that worked with him. Mm-hmm. But uh, but then I was just like lost for a while. But I think he liked me, so then he asked me if I want to stay. And instead of going back to Brazil and finishing my PhD in Brazil, if I want just to finish there, because I had I already had done all the courses and exams and everything in Brazil, but in Germany you don't have courses and exams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, well, why not, you know? And then I had this exam, which was basically I had to give a seminar about my master's again, which I had done in Brazil, you know, at that, that time, like almost two years before. But, you know, uh, <laughs> and that was one of these uh, unforgettable experiences we had, you know. Uh, the, de- the department I was was a very, very well-known theoretical physics department in plasma physics. So everybody was famous there. Everybody was important. All, all, the, all the faculty, all, all, all the scientists, they were all important mm-hmm. and have things in their names. You know, the chair of the department had, has equations in their na- his name and, you know, this level of thing. You know, they really did a lot of the foundation of theoretical plasma physics. But there was no collaboration of communication among them. They were really uh-huh. competing with each other. They were not, you know, <laughs> not at all. So uh, I go to do this exam, or three of them. It was like my real advisor, my the one that became my advisor, uh, official advisor, and someone else. And they, I did my presentation. They made questions, and then they start m- making questions that I'm like, what are they talking about? And then at a certain point, I just sat back, you know, and they started talking to each other. They were really making questions to test each other and see if 
one they, they the other knew what they were talking about and they would say see you don't know that <laughs> i knew you would know what I'm, and i was like what well, these people are all nuts <laughs> um yeah that was an experience but i managed and i managed to get you know when i went to germany i started doing turbulence so yeah turbulence so plasmas doing- Turbulence and plasmas, yes. So that's... We should uh, say for the uninitiated, what's a plasma? So plasma is the fourth state of matter when, you know, you have solid, liquid, and gas, and you form even more. Then you have the electrons separating from the nucleus, and then it's ionized. So that's what you have inside the suns and the stars, for instance. Right. So it's like a gas that has electric charge in it. The, yes. Yeah. And the idea is that you want to make a sun, in, you know, that you can control on Earth, so that Did you, you can have produce... was that part of your research at the time? A fusion was explicitly like yeah. The goal, so the or... institute, the institute was for fusion. So like the the okay. big uh, uh, European experiment that now is being built, it was a project was all done in the same institute that I was. Okay. Um, so, and part of the problem why you, it's hard to confine the plasma is because of turbulence. So, you right, know, right. I was like, you know, three stops. You're trying to put plasma in a, you know, in a, in a device, a tokamak or whatever, one of, some device yeah. where you're going to make fusion and it's, the confinement is that the plasma wants to break out of whatever bubble it's in, you know, whatever region it's in. That You have to keep it hot by keeping it in one place. Yeah. yeah, and you have to use all these magnetic fields and stuff like that. So, it's... It's complicated, yeah. so that's what I, my thesis was. Right. Very theoretical, but you know, you hope that eventually it could be useful for that. But yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Then when I was almost finishing, one of the other scientists in the department came to me and I said that um, he had some uh, money for. Uh, hiring a postdoc if mm-hmm. I wanted to stay there and be a postdoc with him and someone else. It was like a, from the other department. And I had to think about it. Uh, by that time, I broke up with the boyfriend that I, <laughs> I had taken to Germany. Um, and uh, he went back to Brazil. And then um, I met Michael. So Michael, my husband, mm-hmm. arrived to do a postdoc in the same month that I was trying to, you know, almost trying to finish my thesis. So he was at Max uh, Planck also, or he, or he was at the university? Yes, he was at Max Planck. And, you know, his mm-hmm. postdoc advisor was this person that invited me to be his postdoc. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh, so you were two postdocs of the same guy. Okay, somehow I forgot that detail. um and then uh and then i decided why not i decided to stay uh so the postdocs there are three years which are great Uh much better than you know 18 months or two years that you have so i had three months fully funded postdoc to to be there three years sorry three years Mm -hmm. And uh, what was good that, you know, was still in turbulence in plasma that I did my postdoc, mm-hmm. but now was numerical simulations. Uh, right. 
while while my PhD was all analytical stuff. And I think this were, you know, solving equations by hand. That's what basically I was doing in my PhD. Right. Right. So you're both postdocs. When did you get married? When we were postdocs. We were both postdocs. Still in Germany, right? I mean, I knew yeah. I was still in Germany. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so my postdoc was actually, you know, interesting too. So they had this opportunity for a postdoc for me because there were these two guys, one young, uh, younger scientist, American actually, and this older German guy. And they were working more or less in the same thing, but they were not collaborating, you know, the lack of collaboration there. Uh, there were no women there. They, were, they talk about women. There were there was one woman in in, in my in my department. I was the only female student in my. This department. is at Max Planck now. So you're an employee of Max Planck. Okay. Yeah. And the department. What's the department called? Was the theoretical plasma physics one okay. or something like that? Right. No women. Right. There was one on scientist that. that was female. Very bitter and very angry. Everything for her was because she was. Woman, I see. Not a good <laughs> role model. I'm like, I don't want to become like that. <laughs> um, and uh, so yeah, so we were both there doing our postdocs, and then we, after a while, we decided to get married. Got married. I went to Brazil to get married, um, and then um, we had Alex, my older son when we were living there as postdocs. Right, okay. was a little crazy. Uh, we would take turns working. I, I would go very early to work and work until like lunchtime or something, go home. And, you know, and then Mike would work, you know, afternoon and late evening. There was no parental leave or nothing? Oh, I had, oh, yes, there was. Oh, my, nothing... It's Europe. Right. As a postdoc, I had 12 weeks of uh -huh. parental, okay. fully paid parental leave. Yeah. And then I took a two more weeks. Uh, I went to Brazil, actually, and actually gave a course, a graduate course at the University mm -hmm. of Sao Paulo yeah. um, during that time. Um, but there wasn't some like great free daycare or something after that? No, actually, you had to sign up for the daycare like years ahead. You were okay. in the waiting list for the daycare, okay. but never. So Germany is not totally perfect, but okay. No. Uh, well, because, you know, if you really has a real job, you can leave your job and they keep your job is secure. Yeah. And then you go back after three years or something like that. And you still have mm. the right to your job. Well, so, but as a postdoc, I, I didn't have a job in three years. Right, so. right, right. <laughs> but then, so we did that for a while, and then Mike's postdoc finished because he started before me, six months before me. So then right. Mike was home with Alex for, I don't know, seven months or something like that. Really? Seven months? Okay. Yeah. So then we are trying to figure out what to do. You know, we were both foreigners in Germany. It's not that we, you know, could or wanted to stay there. I went to stay two years in Germany and ended up staying six and a half. <laughs> so I was, I was done. Um, yeah. 
Um, so we were saying we want to go back to the U.S., we'll go to Brazil. And, uh, you know, every time we would go to Brazil, it would be so much fun. You know, Brazil is fun as a vacation. You know, we would go there, go to the beach and see all my family and have parties. And like, oh, I want to do that. <laughs> of course, it was not like that. Uh, and then one of the times we were there, we were trying to figure out what to do. And I talked with one of my professors from from the Physics Institute. And uh, he went to MIT and um, his good friend from MIT was Antonio Divino Mora. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, he, and he was a lot involved with CPTech. It's this Brazilian center for weather and climate. Mora was a, was a climate scientist who, late, who became the head of the International Research Institute at Columbia, where you were going to work later. We haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. So, and then they say, yeah, well, CPTech is always working, looking for people that know about fluids, know how to program. Maybe I'm sure they will be happy to hire both of you. Um, so say, that maybe you set up a CP Tech as a climate institute or a, climate a and weather, yeah, yeah, okay, government, in uh, yes, government. In it's like part of uh, the equivalent of NASA in Brazil, but they have that, okay. So we thought, oh, why not? We could go there for a while and, and do something because, because Michael was, you know, he his PhD in applied math, so he was doing plasma physics, but he could do something different too. So, so that was the plan. But then there was an opening of a faculty position in physics, in plasma physics, uh, in one of the state universities and the campus, which was very close to this, uh, to CP Tech. And where is CP Tech? CP Tech is uh, just between Sao Paulo and Rio in the middle in a very oh, okay. small town. Okay. Um, so I decided to apply for that position. So I went back to Brazil, you know, this state university faculty positions there, like a civil servant position. So it has all this, you know, days long competition for you to, that you have to do. And uh, end up, there was like a strike when I was there or something that ended up taking longer. So I left Mike and the baby in, in Germany and went to Brazil to do that. <laughs> And I ended up staying a long time. Uh, and then I, I got this position. And these positions in Brazil is like, you know, the, you know, you have a job for life. You have tenure right away. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then, but it's also a state university. So it was approved, but then they have to be approved in all levels of government for you, us actually to start. So I went back to Germany and to wait for it to actually tell me, actually, there is the job is ready for you now. So, but then my postdoc finished. So we went to Brazil and then we stayed, the, you know, after we were there a m- month or two, then, then we both, uh, we moved to the town where the university campus is. So between Sao Paulo and Rio, it's called Guaratinguetá, the city we're living mm-hmm. in. So it's near the coast. So the coast of Sao Paulo, you have, you know, uh, the mountains and Amata Atlantica just there. So if you go up the coast, it, it's mm-hmm. one up there. Um, and by purely coincidence, um, it was the town that my grandfather 
family from my father's side was from. So I actually mm. have family, you know, not close family. It was like the cousins of my father and all, but, you know, mm-hmm. all then there and um, living there. So that's where we went to live. And, and uh, so you ended up staying there. I'm trying to remember how, uh, how many years you were A little there? over three years. Right. And you had a second child there, right? Yes. Yeah. Jamie was born when we were living there. And how'd you end up leaving? I don't want to rush through it, but I want to get to like your life since then. So, <laughs> so I mean, what, uh, what how did I end up to live? Well, it was a shock going back to Brazil. Um, in all, in all different ways, you know, in going from Germany that everything works, everything is functional, everything happens what's supposed to happen. And going from the Max Planck that, you know, you had a library in each department besides the, the, the you know, the whole institute library, computers, whatever you needed. <laughs> You know, then I I remember clearly going to the university library first time and you know sitting on crying I'm like no this is really this is really tough because it wasn't a good library no not at all <laughs> and you know it was like it's a good university but it's not one of the top universities mm-hmm. in, in, so there are three state universities in São Paulo. University of São Paulo, that's where I studied. Then the University of Campinas, which is very good too. And then this is like the third one. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And this one is like the SUNY kind of style. So there are multiple campuses everywhere in the state. Each yeah. each campus is very small and very focused on something. And so I was at the engineering school there. Mm-hmm. And they have the... Um, physics and math department basically to teach the engineering school physics and math but you know there was a small plasma physics group but i was basically only theoretical physicist there right so you had ambitions to do research i mean yes yeah that's you know and they hired me to be the theoretical plasma physics in well i mean what's the expectations around research and teaching at this place i mean what so you're teaching at least two courses a semester, every semester. And yeah. and then we're supposed to do research too. So, and then, you know, I, I was, you know, for their standards, I was doing very well. You know, I, I got one of these, you know, fellowships of, you know, young scientists in a developing center in Brazil, whatever, that has a a state equivalent of NSF, so mm-hmm. which is FAPESP, and gives all. I got all my scholarships from that, and so they had one for, especially for the case of having people that did their PhD out of Brazil and want back for them to start off and get a group and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I got one of those that you know funded me for a few years, and I was collaborating with my best friend, who you know from we were starting our of research together she had gone to england and did her phd but still in plasma physics and she got a job at the impi and uh, not where cptech is but the other one and so we started collaborating too so you know so i was doing okay but I, we really didn't like it there uh 
the city we were, it's just like there was nothing to do. And mm. uh, there was the research was really, really hard to do research there. Uh, and Michael had a visiting scientist position. So, so it wasn't necessarily job security either for him. Exact for him. Yeah. yeah. So after a while, we decided we didn't want to stay there, that we want to try to come to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening was that uh, Mike was coming to NASA Goddard uh, as part of the, his job in uh, He in had Brazil. visited NASA visiting, it. yes. He, he visited a few times when he was... There was some was collaboration part, between Brazil yes. and NAS, US yeah. NASA. Okay. Yeah. So he was hoping that through that, he could eventually get, you know, a job in, in the US. Right. You know, he was working with data simulation when he was in Brazil. Right. I mean, so to be... I know you said this before, just to be clear. Mike, at this point, is working in climate science in Brazil. Yes. He, data yes. simulation is a topic in our field. So he has already switched... Being an applied mathematician, yes, yeah. and he had, was fine with that. I mean, he might have been unhappy about Brazil, but he was happy with this new topic. Was yeah, just, yeah, just he, as good as plasma physics for him. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't have any heart in plasma physics. It was just like <laughs> something to do math. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. not. Um, and then uh, we decided that we want to do that. So we, the easiest was for him to apply for jobs because, you know, he was American and yeah. so and I didn't have even had a green card or anything. So, um, right. so he started applying for jobs and then he got two offers in the end. He had uh, an offer for uh, Princeton to go to Jeff Dale. Okay. Geophysical to, Fluid Dynamics Lab. Great climate yeah, science uh, yeah. place. Yeah. Must was to be a postdoc there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at that point, uh, IRI was starting at Columbia. Yeah. So he applied there and they offered him a research scientist position. Okay, so this is going to be important. So IRI was International Research Institute for Climate and Society. Now it's called, I think maybe the other words were something else back then. But this was a new institute at Columbia that was starting in the late 90s that had the goal of doing seasonal forecasting and making it relevant, making it useful to countries around the world. It was building on Kane and ZBX work, developing ENSO forecasts, but trying to sort of operationalize that and make it, uh, you know, do good in the world by using the seasonal forecast for different thing, you know, hydrology, water resources, uh, agriculture, health, whatever you could benefit the world by knowing something about, what the climate's going to be in the next few months or year that, you know, it was about that. And so they were just staffing up this thing and hiring people to start the new NOAA had national oceanic and atmospheric administration had funded it. Columbia was going to building a building and they were hiring a lot of people. And so that's when you guys uh, came, sorry, just to translate. So everybody of understands, course. cause this was not just a big moment in your careers, but also a big moment in, Columbia's history in this field and also the history of the science. I mean, it was yeah. a, IRI was a new, really new kind of thing. Yeah, so he then accepted the job, and then I was trying to figure out what to do. Uh, I was still doing plasma physics, and I tried to make some contacts. You know, Alan Boozer, who actually I knew from the yeah. Max Planck Institute, he was going to be hired to be the new head of our department, but ended up coming to Columbia, contacted right. him, 
contacted uh, some other people, and they at that point, Klasma Physics F actually had no money in the U.S. was a very bad timing, and also there was a lot of Russian scientists coming to the U.S. that used to be plasma physics. Right, a lot of nuke guys and stuff. Yeah. Right, because the because of the collapse of the of the Soviet yeah. Union, yeah, they weren't building bombs anymore, and they had to get a job. Yeah. So it was like no way I could get a job in plasma physics. It was very clear. Uh, so I had to figure out what else to do, you know. And we didn't try to, you know, negotiate both jobs at the same time or anything. After Mike had applied and I figured out, I was like, oh, maybe I studied something. You know, I was. Mm-hmm. But then Mike mentioned to Steve Zibiak, who was like the head of the division where he was being hired that, you know, you know, I actually have a wife and actually she has a PhD. And um, so Steve told Michael, there are some, you know, support scientist positions kind of tell mm-hmm. her to apply for one. So I did. And, uh, you know, it was a little weird because Mike had already accepted the job was not that, right. you, know, you know, they knew that I was coming anyway. So they actually, but they actually flew me from Brazil to do a, an interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and what's the weirdest thing ever? Uh, uh, so I arrived in New York, had a beautiful day in New York. And then uh, uh, the next day, it's, it's end of March and it's snowing. It's really snowing. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I missed the first shuttle because, you know, was a mess for me to get, you know, from the bus that Columbia run because yeah. I arrived on the Lamont campus, which is half an hour out of the city. And so you had to catch this bus that Columbia runs and yeah. it was messed up by the snow. Okay. So finally, which, which happens get... many times for those of us who know, who work there regularly. <laughs> it's not unusual in winter for that to happen. But and then I get to Lamont and they... I uh, was starting to talk with Steve, and then the power went off. There was no power. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody, they closed the campus. So I came all the way to Brazil for this interview. <laughs> they closed the campus, and everybody was leaving. <laughs> and it was everything dark. <laughs> it was just like, this is surreal. Why are we coming here? <laughs> Uh, and then Steve was like trying to figure out what to do. And then he had to f- find a place to take me to lunch because the cafeteria was closed because there was no light. <laughs> and then he tried to figure out where we could even do for lunch. And then, you know, I talked to a few people, but not many because everybody was leaving because there was a snowstorm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was uh, a very <laughs> right. you interesting. came from a developing country. Welcome to U.S. Exactly. Everything works great here. But they still offered me the job. <laughs> so that was it. Then we moved to U.S. I got my green card. And your kids were how old at this time? Very small, right? Alex was four and Jamie was one. Turned so this two is like 99? Nine. Nine. So at least, uh, I mean, this was kind of a... Uh, you know, a step down, right? I mean, oh yeah. How did you feel about? I mean, in other words, well, you may just say a few words about what your job was. I mean, but it, it was a as a support scientist, it was not the equivalent of the job you left. No, I was a, you know full faculty, you know, in Brazil, and then coming to be a support scientist. So what did that mean? 
or how, how, what did they say it was? And what well, was they it, basically yeah. said I was going to be working with some of the scientists and you know doing some research with them. Uh, I, I basically didn't know, you know, learn yeah. to run some models and stuff like right. that. Maybe they didn't know either in a way because they were probably hiring a lot of people at the same yeah. time since this new institute was growing up quickly. Yeah. So they just figured, oh, she has a PhD. She can probably do something. You know. And, and you know, it was in fluid dynamics, plasma physics. I couldn't right. do But it was still a big change of field, really. Yeah, I mean, oh, yes. Know, yeah. In terms of technical skills you had, but. Yeah. But you didn't know the subject matter. No, not at all. It was, you know, and that was very hard in the beginning. I'm like, what are these people talking about? You know, we go to the talks and like EOFs. I'm like, what the hell is that? Are they talking? EOF, this... right. Empirical orthogonal function. Right. I'm yeah. like, is this English? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So was a big change. Uh, and it was everything. It was a lot. Everything. It was moving countries. Had two small kids, changing fields. It was just like was everything was so overwhelming that I basically was I felt like I was just going through the motions and trying to survive each day. Once, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and I you know, and in some sense they were you know flexible. You know, we Mike and I were the same group. So yeah. we said we didn't want to be working the same projects together. <laughs> we got yeah. a little separation, uh, which is funny because when we were in Brazil, we were working together. We worked in different places. but Right. And you maybe. are again now somewhat. Yeah. We'll get to that later. <laughs> but, you know, Steve put me to work with Dave DeWitt, who is now one of the directors at uh, one of the NOAA institutes. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he knows a lot. He knew a lot. He was running a lot of models. So we started working with Dave and learning. I started you know, also taking some auditing, some classes. Oh, okay. I didn't know it was mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I took a Del Genius class. I took Kane's class. All right. Good. And I mean, and the group you were in, I mean, Steve Zbiak's group was kind of doing the technical, you know, underpinning of the whole thing, right? In other words, yeah. there were people who were more thinking about how to use the forecast, but Steve's group was kind of like figuring out how to make yeah. the forecast. Is that a fair statement? So using atmospheric yeah. models, using all the data, try to kind of really operationalize seasonal forecasting at a time when it was still pretty new. Yeah. You know, that you're going to, using knowledge of ENSO or whatever, you're going to make a forecast of the next few months or year. Uh, for the tropical Pacific, and then what's going to be around the world? You know, not weather, but but climate. Right? Is the is the average? Is this winter going to be warmer than usual, or is it going to be a wet or dry, you know, rainy season in northeast Brazil or wherever? Yeah. So what I did, and at first it was just looking at, you know, trying to learn to run the model and do some plots to see the bi model biases, the climatology, stuff like the very basic stuff. Mm -hmm. But they needed that to be done anyway. Yeah. And then Steve was like, oh, we need to figure out some very sp more specific project to you to work on. And we started discussing some ideas. That's when you were hired. Mm -hmm. um, and that one of the ideas that um, Steve suggested was to do a seasonal forecast of hurricanes. Um, because at that point at the GFDL in Princeton, Frederick Vitar was working on that right. with their model. And they said, well, if he's doing that, we could do that too. So actually I went and 
talk with Frederick when he was still a student. Oh, really? I didn't know that. You guys went back that far. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So, um, and so just the idea there, because I, you know, to explain this, because I know the science, I mean, is that there had been seasonal forecasts of hurricane activity before that done with statistical methods. I mean, it started with Bill Gray in Colorado State in the 80s, but, you know, statistical methods, meaning, you know, sort of that the hurricanes are affected by El Nino or affected by other, you know, the African monsoon or whatever it might be. And so you can, based on the past history of how those things are correlated, you can make a forecast. But you guys, based on Frederick's work, Steve had this new idea to that actually climate models that had too low representation to really simulate hurricanes, but they sort of tried to make some weak storms that were kind of hurricane-like and they sort of appeared in the right places and times and they seemed to respond to and so in the right way. So that basically you could actually use the climate models to forecast hurricanes, which was kind of a new idea and that's what you were doing right yeah that he told you know that's that was my project to do that and and because you had just started there and you were a tropical right. I came person. a few months after you i think we were yeah six months so that time. was yeah so that was the point that it's like i had done like this basic work with dave dewitt uh and they say okay now we try to find a more specific project that's what exactly when you arrive into and you were um I mean, I didn't think I was a part of you're getting assigned that project. I thought you and Steve were already doing it. And then I kind of. No, it was like when they decide what to do. It's like, oh, but then you can also ask, you know, interact oh, with okay. Adam because he's, a, you know, he, he knows the tropics and whatever. Well, that's interesting. I didn't quite realize yeah. that they had me in mind at, uh, in the beginning. I thought you guys started it without. Yeah, I think, you know, it was, it was not like because of you. It's just like, right, let's right. do that. But, you know, and yeah. part of it also start, you know. Interact right. with Adam and okay. and and that's it. And then you know, twenty years later, here I am, still doing hurricanes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought well, I was going to do hurricanes for one year, but <laughs> right. Well, let's, but let's, we can go through it a little more than that. I mean, yeah. I mean, I was there, so it's a little awkward for me to ask the questions. But I mean, but you know, so my memory of it is, you you were assigned to do this. You know, you had a specific task. Let's figure out how to make you know, do make seasonal forecasts of hurricanes from the models. And you did that for quite a few years. Yeah. Um, but then you and I started doing some sort of, I don't know, basic research is the right word for it, somewhere be- between basic and applied um, on hurricanes and climate. And that went on for a few years. Yeah. And then... And um, then in, in a part of that, then I was, you know, once I start getting stuff going, then also I was promoted to be a real... Instead of right. This... So how long did that take? I'm trying to remember when that happened. It was a few years, two or three years. I, well, I stayed like four years as a support scientist. Okay, so four years you got promoted to be an actual research research scientist, scientist at yeah. the IRIs. They finally recognize, okay, Susanna is a legit climate scientist now. No, I, you know, and from the beginning, I told Steve that I wanted to do that, that yeah. I didn't want to be in the in support. And he was very like, yeah, sure, we can do right. that when right. is the right time it's like right. n- was not that he you know um and they were supportive of it right uh, right and so we were doing that for a few years i think we published the first papers together in 2004 5 so i'm still a junior faculty member at this time and i was actually sitting in the iri because i was hired um kind of complicated but i was hired in joint position in two departments but also kind of because the earth institute when Columbia, when the IRI was created, they got money from NOAA, but it was like, it was a grant that required matching. So 
Columbia was supposed to put something in, you know, to help of their own resources to help support the IRI. And they created a bunch of faculty positions and they said, we'll hire faculty members who will do things relevant to the IRI. Like they won't really be on the staff of the IRI. They'll be regular faculty in some department, but they'll do stuff that's relevant. And I was one of those. So the Earth Institute paid my salary with, I think, the first five years. So as a consequence of which I had one office in the city in applied physics and applied math where, oddly enough, the plasma physicists were that you knew. That total coincidence, but also sitting at Lamont campus. But at that time, I sat in the IRI down the hall from you, so I, you know, I was kind of there too. And so we wrote a couple papers. And then the part I wanted, you know, you to talk about a little bit is when, you know, it, at that time, you can correct me if you remember differently, but my memory is that, you know, you were writing about tropical cyclones and how they're related to climate, and that didn't really seem like a hot field at that time. No, not it seemed kind of sleepy. I mean, it's hard to imagine that now, but that's what I want to talk about. Like climate change and hurricanes, there had been a, some research about that over the years, but it was not, there weren't a lot of people working on it. And, and so, I mean, forecasting tropical cyclones with, you know, climate forecast was not a big topic either. So it just kind of felt like a weird thing. And then I, I want I'm wondering if you can talk and about And then the came 2005. Well, but wait, but we started organizing the workshop before that. Do you remember that? Yes, yes. So we decided to do a workshop and on on this topic. It was kind of a little... It was because of Leonard Bengtson. Yes, working, that's all right. Leonard Bengtson. From the SNWF, yeah. senior scientist yeah. who was interested in this topic, among many other things. And he came and visited, and we were talking to him about it. I think it was about 2004. Yeah. And he said, which was also that's an active right. hurricane season, but we weren't thinking about it that much. And he said, you guys should do a workshop on this. And we yeah. went, okay. We went and raised a little money from somewhere. I don't know. And we said, let's do a workshop. And we thought it would be a sleepy little workshop of the like couple that dozen we, people that in the world. That we had to convince people to come. <laughs> right. We're like, maybe people will show up and it'll be kind of interesting. And it took us like two, a year or two to get the act together to, you know, plan it and have the date and get people to come. In between which 2005 happened. So yes, I just kind of hear then, your sort of memory of that sequence of events. Yes, that's uh, that's right. Yeah, I had forgotten about Leonard Bankston, but now that you mentioned, now I remember, yeah. Uh, and then that was it, you know, the 2005, we had Katrina, and we had two papers that were exploded. Carrie Manuel had one paper, and Peter Webster had another paper on climate change and hurricanes, and that, you know, that the feud like became a very, you know, controversial topic. Was well, both papers, papers said that that you know hurricanes are increasing because of climate change. It's getting more active. They're getting more powerful. There's more hurricanes because of climate change. And I would say that, you know, Carrie Manuel and Peter Webster, two very famous big shots in the field, and nobody there hadn't been such strong statements like that in the literature from people of that stature. So it got a huge amount of attention, but also a lot of pushback because a lot of other people in the field didn't quite buy it, didn't think they were using the data right or whatever. So it became a big fight. And then we happened to be organizing this workshop at the same time. So suddenly it kind of became about the global warming problem to some extent. And a lot of people wanted to come and it was very well attended. And there was, wasn't, I, I, I was expecting journalists and journalists. all kinds of stuff. I was expecting big fights. We didn't have such big fights, but no. it was a little tense. Yeah. At times, yeah. Yeah. So, the, so were the, you... the fights I remember at that time was at AMS that they had this, you know, this evening session 
that you know people were basically almost fist fighting there. Yeah. Right. Maybe <laughs> Not that, that, that workshop. I think that had already happened, so maybe that's why we were expecting kind of a contentious. I, I don't remember the sequence of it. But I mean, my memory of it is that like we thought we were just kind of plugging away, writing a couple little papers, and all of a sudden we were at the center of a big. I'm not maybe not the center, but we you know we were in the right place at the right time. Yeah. You know for that. Yeah. So it was definitely very interesting, and that and helped my career a lot, and met lots of people that through that workshop and people get to know me and definitely uh, important and it but it was around that time also that you left the IRI right after that so maybe we can talk about that sequence of events too yeah so IRI has a mission and uh, as part of the scientists there you have to work on the mission and I was, you know, I was writing papers and writing lots of papers. The mission actually. was not just writing papers. The mission exactly. was explicitly, it was trying to be different than a normal academic institute. Exactly. To, that it was more about action in the world and not just writing papers. Yeah. yeah. So I had what's my, like halfway through your, your junior position, you have like a evaluation. Um, and they basically told me I was writing too many papers. <laughs> and and not doing enough of mission work and i'm like really you guys criticizing me to write too many papers and that for me i'm like come on i already came from theoretical physics to atmospheric science and climate now they wanted me to go to the philippines and talk with some water manager of how typhoons were going to influence their specific reservoir. I'm like, oh, really? I'm not the right person to do this. And I had two small kids. I'm like, uh, I'm like, so I, then I started being very frustrated with all that. You know, there was a lot of other issues going on that I arise. So I decided I didn't want to stay there. I, I wanted yeah. to move. I have actually applied for a job to be a faculty at the community college in West. Oh, really? I forgot. Yeah, that. yeah. You probably told me about it. I don't yeah. That. Oh, you, I think you wrote a letter for that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then we, you know, I said, well, I want to work at. Lamont, where you just you do science. I wanted to do right, science. Right, I don't right. didn't want to. Right. You the, know. the model at Lamont is you write proposals, you get grants to fund your salary, and then you do the work. But nobody really cares what the topic of the work is. If you're successful, it's fine. Nobody, you know, it's a much normal academic institute. Um, so you know, IRI was not that at that time. They didn't really want people to write proposals and raise their own funding no. specifically because then they'd go off and do whatever they wanted and not fulfill the mission. Or, you know, they didn't say don't write proposals, but they had a whole process of making sure that if you did write one, that it would fit the mission right. Whereas Lamont was like, well, fine, if you get the money, do whatever, you know. The promotion process just of Lamont just involves, you know, people have to write letters about saying you're good at something, but it doesn't matter what something is. Yeah, and then after some, you know, wheeling around, talking with people and... (laughs) It was possible, you know, you made it happen. Yeah. Well, what happened was, I mean, my memory of it was that uh, 
so there's the Lamont positions where you, which at the time was called Doherty Research Scientist or something, where you get some hard money from the institution and you have to raise the rest. And we couldn't get you one of those then um, because you had to have your own funding to get one of those. That was how it worked at that time. It was actually, I think, pretty easy to get one at that time if you had funding, but you didn't. So I had enough money to hire you for a year, but I kind of didn't want to because, you know, at the IRI, they paid your whole salary 12 months. And that seemed like a good deal to me. Um, I mean, a good deal for you. And, and, and you were like, I don't want to do this. I want to get out of here. And I was like, really, you want to write proposals all the time to raise your salary? They're paying you. I mean, I know you're frustrated about this, that, and the other thing, but it's a pretty good deal, actually. And you said something like, I'm out of here. You can help me or not. That's your choice, but I'm getting out of here. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, you know, so I think I had some money and managed to hire you for a year. So for, I think for a year, yeah, you technically so that, worked I, I for still... me. And in that year, you wrote proposals and got your own funding. Then we managed to get you your own uh, position pretty quickly. Yeah. And also, you know, IRI agreed in the end to pay my salary for a little bit of oh, my Oh, they salary helped too. for a while. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the first kind of... three years, like, you know, the first year they paid like three months, the second year, two right. months. Right, it's kind year, of soft so. divorce, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> it's between their, their forecasts and stuff like that. And right. then, yeah, after a year in the right. regular research center, I, I, I transferred to the Dorothy line. Right, so about 2007 or eight or something? 2007, I moved in 2008, to, from by Lamont, 2008, from you were to a, a proper, yeah. So you've been at Lamont since then, since whatever, 12 or 13 years. 2007, yeah. Right. I mean, we've been working together since then. You know, it's a, a happy situation for both of us. But um, but you stayed on this topic, you know, completely. I mean, not completely. I mean, you worked a little on other things. But basically, tropical and cyclones and climate turned out to be such a winner, you know, a topic that had such tremendous um, interest uh, it's so many people, new people started working on that around actually after you, you know, you were kind of there before the big wave of, of interest that happened. And, uh, you know, you're a famous um, person in this field now. But I mean, do you ever think about just the randomness of that? I mean, in the sense yeah. that, I mean, you could have ended up working on anything. I mean, the fact that Steve suggested this particular thing. Like, I think my whole career was like that, you know, I went up in plasma physics just because, you know, the professor was nice, <laughs> you know, I stayed there for many, many years. And then I, you know, I would, Steve was saying, oh, you could do whatever months, I think it was mentioned monsoons or whatever. And then I, yeah, I liked the idea of tropical cyclones. And then, yeah, I think it's a lot of randoms and Right. But this particular randomness, yeah. I mean, the plasma physics, you know, in the end didn't work out as well. This one really did, right? Yeah. No, but I stayed so many years, too. It's just like from yeah, undergrad but it, but all the way to a faculty position, you know, just because I knocked on the door, <laughs> the person was, right. you know. Right. Yeah. So the other funny thing, um, I mean, I don't know if we can talk about this, but is that, um, you know, you and Mike... Uh, your husband, Mike Tippett, um, my memory has completely avoided each other at work for a long time. But then about 10 years ago, at your suggestion, I think we were working on some problem and we didn't really know how to do it. And, you know, we, he had the relevant knowledge oh. and you suggested we should bring in Mike. So now since then, you guys have actually worked together, you know, some some fraction of your time. And, and, and usually with me, too. So it's a strange 
um, you know, thing that, you know, you and I sort of have like a work marriage, but then you have your actual marriage to your actual husband. And I, and it's just so, kind of strange sometimes. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's complicated because we have very different, you know, ways of viewing things. Uh, Mike and I, we are very different personalities. Yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> but do you have this? Do you still have the? It seems for a long time, maybe still, you have the, the the policy of you don't talk about work at home. So, so I've just had the strange situation where sometimes I feel like you guys tell me something so that I'll tell the other one. <laughs> no, not really that way. But you know, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't. Sometimes we wouldn't discuss stuff. But we'll yeah. both discuss with you or something like that. Yeah, we don't talk a lot about work still, you know. Yeah. But he's now a faculty member in Applied Physics and Applied Math in my department. And you are uh, basically a faculty member in Earth and Environmental Sciences. You became a, an adjunct faculty member, adjunct. which in our department is actually a, a, a real um, adjunct has a kind of a negative connotation in most of academia but these adjunct positions are actually you're a voting faculty member and you get some salary for teaching and keep your research position so it's actually a good i mean and you're the now the as of how long ago you're the marie tharp fellow right yeah that has that actually officially started now uh, yeah wow over a year ago marie Th- yeah. i'm the marie tharp lamont research professor in that so. marie tharp lamont research professor right you're the first one in this named chair Named for Marie Tharp, the early uh, you know, uh, scientist who did um, seismic exploration of the seafloor. So it's so actually, so my point is just you know, you've achieved a high degree of success, you know, a good, uh, a, yeah. a good position. I want to talk a little bit about uh, politics and your perception of what's happening here now and how it relates to your experience in Brazil. Um, I mean, well, first of all, you're not, you haven't thought about going back ever. No, no. Um, I think it was good that I went back after living in Germany. Yeah. Because it was like, okay, I know how it is. (laughs) Been there, done that. And I don't want that for me. And, And things sincerely just went down from Brazil since we moved here so uh, in all terms you know violence poverty everything and now you know in both countries we have this madman on top <laughs> so the right. parallels are even more right starker. we can have the so argument of even... worse yeah. uh, uh, right. well both my passports and both my countries have <laughs> crazy people on top so uh. yeah yeah it's it's scary especially the whole threat to democracy i think that's the scary that is the scary stuff. thing here i mean that's what's got so many of us you know so so terrified and so concerned in the run-up to this election and i'm just wondering if if you know in what ways your experience in brazil colors your perception of that or does it not i mean Actually, my mom was asking me today. Uh, she said, "Why he said he won't, you know, transfer power?" I'm like, "Mom, where do you live?" <laughs> <laughs> she said, "I'm like, do you remember 
when there was a coup? Oh, <laughs> uh, and I don't know if you know there's the chance to have a coup here, but you know I think could be yeah something. But I think just the way the whole democratic institutions were uh, affected through the last four years and all the social things that are in danger now, you know, gay marriage, abortion. Yeah. Everything. So it's, yeah, everything. Not even, you know, talking about climate change, which is, you know. So in your research, I think for a while, you and I actually, maybe not consciously, but we sort of were slow to actually work on global warming and hurricanes. Like even for a while after that became big, we kind of kept working on natural modes of variability. I mean, avoiding so, a little bit the hot topic. Quasi biennial <laughs> oscillation, Madden Julian oscillation, how these various natural modes of variability affected the cyclones. I, I don't know why that was. I guess I just kind of felt like you could do it empirically. I mean, you could really see things in the data and the answers were a little more solid. Global warming stuff was so much based on models that were, you know, it took a while to have confidence in the models and. And, and the models were getting better, but back then they they weren't too good in the for this problem, and the underlying theory wasn't so strong. So, it, but now you know we've been doing a lot of climate change and global warming stuff. I mean, to what extent do you feel like this topic was like a conscious choice? Like, I mean, you're and have you stayed with this just because kind of riding the wave? You know, I mean, you had some success at it, right? You keep going and. There's a lot of traits you have that make you an excellent scientist, but one of them is you're very, you know, you have a lot of drive, you know, you're always looking for the next thing, pushing forward, you know? And so, you know, do you feel that that momentum has just carried you or, you know, is this a conscious thing where you think maybe I should work on something else, but no, this is I mean, do you get bored with it ever? You know, what's the, what's that dynamic of staying on this problem, you know, from where you came from? I think some of it is because I, I like and I find interesting, but yeah. some of it is also, I think, especially when you're doing a lot of soft money, it's hard to change because right. you become an expert on something. And then when you want to write a proposal, if you do something completely different, it's like, oh, you don't have the background to be the PI on this topic. But if you right. write about something that you know and people know you and you publish papers, then you have a better chance to get funded too. So I think it was both things, you know, the funding yeah. situation that, you know, I had to raise money to do my research. And basically it was it's kind of you get this in inertia that's, you know, if you do this, maybe you get a good chance to get funded and thing like that. Yeah. I mean, that applies uh, to everybody to some degree. I mean, it's, I think it's exacerbated in the soft money system where people really have to yeah. raise a lot of grant money, but even for in the United States, even for regular academic faculty in, in research universities where your salary is paid nine months by the institution, but still, if you want to have a research program, you want to have graduate students, postdocs and whatever, you have to raise research money. And the funding system is, is conservative. I mean, in the sense that, you know, not politically conservative, but in the sense that it's nice to get really good reviews, but it's more important not to get bad reviews. It's sort of like people, 
you can't propose something that's too creative or too different than what you've done before, because then it will seem too, you know, risky and somebody won't like it. So you won't get funded. So yeah, that is a force that keeps, I think, many of us, or maybe most of us, you know, from changing our focus too quickly because the funding system doesn't encourage it. That's true. And I think the, you know, as you progress in the career, it becomes harder to, to do big changes too. Because then you have students, you have postdocs, you have, you know, that are working on that topic. So, you know, it's hard to say, okay, I'll stop interacting with all that. <laughs> I'm going yeah. to start something completely new. <laughs> yeah. You know, because of your, you know, your moves around the world and your change of field, you had a, a kind of, climb up from there. I mean, in other words, you, you, you know, you were starting in a position where not only did you have a support scientist position after being a professor, but also you were in a field where, you know, you'd already did a PhD and a postdoc and a whole bunch of stuff. And now you're in this new field where you don't have any connections. You don't have, you know, the yeah. prior. And so it's been a yeah. road of like now of like, you know, really long period of like proving yourself maybe to everybody else. And I don't know, maybe to yourself too, but now you're, you know, for a long time now, you're a very established, you know, well-known person. And I just, I'm just hard. kind of interested in your reflection on that process and how, you know, how you feel about it all now or where, you know. It was very hard for a long time. And I think my confidence was very low because I didn't have the background atmospheric science as everybody had. So I always thought that I didn't know anything i didn't know what i was talking about uh, right. and that everybody Which in the beginning knew. was true but <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know even with even now i was like maybe i'm missing some essential things that everybody did in their dynamic courses uh, you know something like that so i think that was very hard and and now i'm like well, nobody knows this either. I thought everybody knew, but, right. you know, I don't know, but nobody knows that. <laughs> right. Uh, so, but it took me a long time to get there and realize that. And there was a lot of, um, you know, people saying things uh, like, oh, you're not really from atmospheric science. You're not really from the field, even though, well, I'm calling years I'm doing this. And, you know, people would still make comments. And really? there were comments, you know, like, oh, I was just hired because of Mike, you know, which was, you know, this is the other, you know, being right. a couple in science. Yeah. yeah and, 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 and in some ways until now, and I like go to a conference, I meet someone that, you know, never met me before and say, so where did you go to school? And I'm like, I say, in Germany, who was your advisor? And when I'm like, oh, I did in physics. Oh, it's just like, oh. <laughs> and now it's more, you know, not as common, but, you know, for a long, long, long time. Every time I was introduced to someone, I would get that, you know, like, not again. <laughs> <laughs> It's just like tiring uh, to do to deal with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, and I, you know, I still feel that I have some holes in my knowledge because I didn't have the, like the traditional formation. Um, yeah, but everybody has holes in their knowledge. Yeah, 
but on the other hand, you know, when has any physics involved in it, I'm like, you know, I'm like, oh, whatever, <laughs> you know, seems easier than for some people. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Well, is there anything else we should be talking about that we didn't talk about? I don't know. I think we try. We went through a lot. Are there going to be more hurricanes with global warming or not? <laughs> What's your opinion, Professor Camargo? Oh, gosh. Here we are. <laughs> that's what the, you know, we get from the journalists every time. And I'm like, well, that's not the right question to do. <laughs> What's the right question? Uh, it's how the hurricanes are changing because of climate change, their characteristics, right. not... Right. You know. I've actually come to think that there are going to be more in the Atlantic. Yeah. Because of the because Blunny of the Pacific thing. state and because of the at least relative to the low periods of the past because mm -hmm. most yeah. recent ones were aerosol cooled, cooled and yeah. Mm -hmm. I've come to think that the Atlantic actually probably will stay high um on average. Yeah, probably, you know, but globally of, I think it's harder to say. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about that talking to journalists? You've been doing that more now. Comfortable with that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm used to it now. Uh, yeah. So, but now I'm there starting to ask me to participate in some things that I'm not super expert on. Like, you know, on Wednesday, I'm in this panel that's about, you know, managed retreat and, you know. All right. So I'm like, huh, how exactly are the right, you know, way of talking about that? I have my way of thinking about it, but, you know, it's not my expertise. This know? is something that happens, right? If, you, if you're if you an expert in something that's of interest to journalists um, or the public, and you start, you know, being known for commenting on that publicly, then... At some point, you get asked to comment on other things that you don't know as much about, and you have to decide: okay, am I going to say, "Oh, I don't know about that," or are you going to give an opinion, or you know, how are you going to handle it? And it's like you don't want to be the person who is uh, saying dumb stuff about things they don't know anything about. You know, you don't want to be that happens to some academics, right? They start thinking they're an expert on everything, and just you know, you don't want to do that. On the other hand, there's some topics where you know, nobody really knows the answer. And you, you know, if you have an opinion, it's reasonable to say it, you know, and it's always a kind of tension of to decide how to handle those yeah. situations. I really am very aware that I'm not an expert on the topic. <laughs> yeah, so that's okay. Yeah. But you might know more than the people in the audience. I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, you don't have to know more than the number one expert in the world. You just have to know more than the people listening to you. And then it's interesting <laughs> yeah. for them. You know, then they will get something out of it, right? Hopefully. Yeah. Yes. Reading about all this thing about women and, you know, women, not women in science, or, you know, women in general, I think, I find fascinating. So. What about women in general? Well, for instance, you know, uh, today in the newspaper, all these people saying that uh, they're voting for Biden and they didn't vote for Hillary because they can't stand women with ambition that one people actually see. said that they asked voters yes they said, they said i can't yes. stand women with ambition wow yep. <laughs> i mean i think we all know that's a bias but i'm kind of surprised people would actually say that to the yep. pollster yeah 
you know, all these, you know, comments. They, they had this whole article in the, the Times today asking this, why you didn't vote for Hillary, but now you're voting for Biden. It's basically because she was a woman. And, right. You know, yeah. So all this thing no about... There's no doubt about it that that was... You know, but so how does that affect your thinking about your public communication outreach in science? Do you feel subject to a stereotype threat or? Is, yeah, I that... think so. Yeah, I try not to. I try to not worry about it. But I think it's, you know, have been very careful how you you say things. And um... What do you feel is the role of gender in your career in the United States? In some ways, I think I was lucky throughout my career. In, mm. in in those terms, mm. um, because I don't think there were a, a lot of instances that I can say, "Oh, I w- I didn't get this, or I didn't manage to do this because I was a woman." Mm. Um, but you know, I still like you know go to conferences, for instance, and you know I'm very aware, you know, how I should behave or not behave, and conscious about like seeing a group having beer is it all men i'm like oh, i'm not going to go there <laughs> or something like that mm-hmm. you know um so i think there are a lot of that got in- intrinsic you, you you behave you know how you dress or you know how you talk you you become very aware of all these things and mm-hmm. and, and and on the other hand I think I had opportunities because of that too. Really? You know? Like yes. Well, there are some things that I did that I'm, sh- you know, oh, we want to have a woman a part of this. All right. Yes. Let's invite a woman to be uh-huh. one of the invited speakers or one of the uh, chair of the conference, uh, you right. know, or... Um, so, of course, the, I mean, this is the, the right wing, you know, uh, no, I'm saying I had opportunities, not that I went ahead of people. Right. 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 (laughs) I'm saying like, that's the claim is right. That, that all kind of, um, diversity, equity, inclusion stuff. There is, you know, there are people who make the claim that that's like discriminating against white men because, you know, people will get asked to do, I mean, you know, I don't think it's a defensible, uh, position but no i think if i was not successful and i was not done what i had done in my career i would not get these invitations that's what not it's not because i only got it because uh you know i am a woman and if i'm complete failure as a scientist i i would still be considered right Uh, right it's just you know so that, I think there is a balance there, too, that you you have to be aware, you know. And, and also that's, you know, talk about administration. I'm sure a bunch of those committees that I am in, you know, we want to have at least a woman in the committee right. as well. So women yes. get, you know, loaded with more administra- yes. administration stuff, too, because every single committee has to be a woman. Right. No they can't have a committee of all men. So... That's a tricky thing because on the one hand, it looks bad to have these committees make important decisions and have no women on it. But on the other hand, you don't want to dump all this work on the women. So it's, yeah, it's a difficult thing. But, you know, we have to understand that it, that it's real. It really happens. 
And you see in the letters, you know, every time you read recommendation letters, you know, the recommendation letter for women, you're, you right. know, so like, yo, she's so such a wonderful patient. She bakes cookies for the department or something like that. Right. <laughs> Nobody would uh, ask, you know, no, I know. Them say anything. Yeah. yeah, everybody has to learn how not to do this. I mean, this is a, you know, this has been documented too, that the. Uh, as for women are all, all the men are brilliant and all the women are hardworking. <laughs> right. All right. Yeah. It's amazing how she manages to balance being a mom with being a you know, scientist or this kind of this I kind just of saw last week at the Supreme Court hearings, they were asking her, you know, how she did laundry and you know, uh, you know, deal with her kids. And I'm like, you know, I'm not a fan of her, but do you think any man was ever asked how he did his laundry or how did he manage his kids? Right. You know? No, I know, but I can't muster any outrage on her behalf, but that's another story. No, I, I, but it's, <laughs> I know, I, no, I'm not saying it's like, for me, no, it's I, the I, man I asking the questions for me is like, you know, all Republicans, they're all asking these questions that, Right, they it think they're being so full nice. of prejudice. Exactly. They think, they think but it's, it's a like, softball. <laughs> it's like, really? That's what you're asking someone who's going to be in the Supreme Court? Yeah. That's your question? Yeah, that's bad form at, at a minimum. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that she's going to take all her rights. So let her take whatever she, she has to take. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. All right. We well, covered everything? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's good. Thank you for doing this. It's been a pleasure to work okay. with you for 20 years. I hope we'll continue. Yes. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> um, and yeah, well, yeah. Thanks for doing it, Susanna. You're very welcome. <laughs> My pleasure. All right. Although I get to talk to Susanna Camargo frequently as part of my day job, it was a special honor and pleasure to be able to record that conversation with her for you. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duotone Audio Group, where our editors and post-producers are Stefan Wiener and Dana Hamm, and our audio engineer is Juan Aboitis. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. <laughs>